Hello, hello, y'all. Hey, it's me, Robin. And before we get into today's episode, I'm here to let you know that the club is open right now for new members. I'm going to take a couple minutes to fill you in on all that the club is offering right now. So if you know for sure you're not interested in joining the club, you're just going to want to hit the forward button a few times until you hear that baffling behavior show jingle. Okay, so the club is a virtual community for families of kids with vulnerable nervous systems and big baffling behaviors. Many families in the club are parenting kids with a history of complex trauma, but definitely not all. Some are parenting kids with vulnerabilities that emerge from their neurotype or their sensory system or their giftedness or their neuroimmune disorder. And of course, some have no idea why their child's nervous system is so vulnerable. The primary purpose of the club and why I've created it the way that I have is connection and co-regulation. Because when I reflect back on my time as a therapist, it wasn't the skills and strategies and tools and techniques I taught parents that mattered the most. What mattered most was how connection and co-regulation strengthened their owl brain so that they could stay more regulated in the face of the chaos in their home. Then they could, number one, actually use the tools, and number two, start to feel a little bit better even before the tools started to work. The club can be accessed online both through your browser on your computer and through an app. And it's open, of course, 24-7. There's a very active forum, a huge video library, and multiple live events every month. Sometimes I teach a masterclass on a specific topic. Sometimes we come together for group coaching or just to ask questions and pick, pick my brain. We have two sessions every month called Connect and Co-Regulates, and those are designed to offer exactly that. There's no teaching, no coaching, just a place for you to be seen and heard by people who get it. Currently, we are also offering once a month bonus sessions for siblings of dysregulated kids. The club is intended to be kind of like a buffet. There is a ton in it, not because you're supposed to do everything in the club. You take what you need when you need it and come back when you're ready for more. If you could use a little extra support, consider joining us. You can read all about all the details over at robingobel.com slash the club. I'll put a link in the show notes And we're open today until the end of the day, Friday, May 3rd. All right, y'all, here's that episode you're waiting for. Hey there, and welcome back. I'm Robin Goebel, and this is the Parenting After Trauma Podcast, where I take the science of being relationally, socially, and behaviorally human and translate it for parents of kids who have experienced trauma. This podcast was created to get free, accessible support to you as fast as possible. So it's not fancy, and I do very little editing. Some episodes are the audios of Facebook Lives, but not this one. Today, I'm just recording this podcast episode with my microphone from my home office. If you love this episode, 
add parenting after trauma with Robin Goebel to your favorite podcast player and definitely share it with your friends and colleagues. If you've sat in a live or virtual audience with me recently, you may have heard me say something like, changing how we see people changes people. It's a quote that's big and bold on my website. And in fact, I've even seen it on other therapists' website, which is super fun. Like to see the ripple effect of goodness as folks take these little nuggets and then pollinate the world with compassion really is is what's happening. Pollinating the world with compassion. And it's just so cool to see how these things just flow out into the world and land and, and create goodness and change. So today, let's look a little further into this idea that changing how we see people changes people, and then we'll connect it directly to parenting kids after trauma. Teeny, tiny babies burst into this world just full of goodness. They are good and wonderful and perfectly imperfect simply because they are them. Like just because they exist, they exist as a human in this world means that they are good and wonderful and perfectly imperfect, right? So my son, right, he has his own amazing humanness, right? He is his own amazing human with all of the flaws that come along with being human. So my son's like perfectly amazing, wonderful humanness doesn't imply perfect, right? He's not perfect because humans aren't perfect. That comes along with being human. But because he exists on this planet, right? He's an amazing human who overflows with goodness and infinite worth. And that's true simply because he exists and has been true since he's come into existence, but he has only come to know that it's true because it's been shown to him, right? And mostly how it's been shown to him is through my eyes and through the eyes of the people close to him, the people he spends the most time with him, the people who adore him, right? Our eyes, my eyes are a reflection to him of who he is. How I see him is how he has come to see himself, right? And I'm hoping that I've done enough of my own work that he has come to know himself as exactly who he really is, not perfect, just human, good and and kind in him. When I say, I hope I've done enough of my own work, I hope 
that I've been able to give him a really accurate reflection of himself, a reflection that isn't clouded and and colored or like distorted based on how I see the world, based on how I see myself, but a real true accurate reflection as much as what, you know, would ever be possible. My parents offer their kids mirrors about who they are. And we reflect back to them who they are. And therefore they come to know themselves based on their reflection. So, you know, as parents, it's not, our kids are, you know, overflowing with infinite worth and perfectly imperfect and, and all of these things kind of regardless of whether we can reflect it to them or not. I mean, it's just true. Our reflection isn't what creates that, but our reflection is how they come to know that it's true. And they come to create their own beliefs and ideas about themselves because of this reflection. So think for a moment, right? Like if I have blue eyes, which I happen to have blue eyes, and I look into a mirror that reflects back to me that I have brown eyes, I'm going to believe I have brown eyes, even though mine are blue, right? So the mirror, the reflection I'm seeing doesn't change my eyes, but the mirror changes what I know about myself. And if it's the only reflection I've ever seen, I'm going to believe that it's completely true. I mean, it wouldn't even occur to me to consider that the mirror was wrong or broken and that maybe I actually have blue eyes instead of brown. It would just be my truth. It would just be how I moved through the world. The possibility of it being untrue, you know, if I'd never seen another mirror, would ne- that would just never even occur to me. And a lot of us, and then our kids as well, you know, our kids, if we are parenting them after trauma, grew up with broken mirrors, right? We may have learned because of the mirrors that were reflected to us, the mirrors that we looked into, the reflection of ourselves that we saw, we may have learned that we were difficult. And we may have learned that we were sort of a pain to be with or unlikable or difficult, to be with. We may have learned that we were a mistake, right? We may have learned that we caused other people a lot of grief or a lot of heartache. We we may have learned that it was really dangerous to hope for connection. And we may have learned that we were inconvenient. And and maybe as we got older, we we learned that we were a liar or a thief or just plain old no good, right? That nobody likes us. We come to know who we are through the eyes of the other. And then our outsides might start to match our insides. Our behaviors may try to match these internalized beliefs that we have based on the reflection of others. Our brains are are trying to find coherence. They're trying to find 
connection in intern in, like internal connection that if this is who I am, it makes sense that this is how I would behave, right? There's a matching there. There's, there's a way of finding safety, right? So for kids, safety is being who and, and what the grownups think that we are. Even if that thing is not good, um, right? If we match who the grownup believes that we are, Oftentimes what happens or what the child's experience and perception of what happens is that the adult often becomes more regulated because we're confirming their belief. We're confirming their experience of reality and ultimately more regulated adults become more safe, right? So we can't tolerate the idea of, not being what the grown-ups say that we are, right? So if we're a small child, we just can't tolerate that maybe we're not what they say we are, right? Because if we even began to, to consider that, if our kids even began to consider that they weren't who the adults have reflected back to them who they are, and when we experience a lot of trauma, we the reflection that we're getting is that there's something very bad or very dangerous or very wrong with us. Right. So, so if, if we, if we, we just can't tolerate the idea of that not being true, right. Because that then would make the adults, the, the potential of being a broken mirror. And for kids, it's actually really, 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 really dangerous to have a broken mirror. I mean, it may be even more dangerous than, the danger that they're experiencing from the adults. It's, it's just so extremely vulnerable to acknowledge that the person who's responsible for keeping us alive is offering us a broken mirror. It, it can feel safer that the mirror was, was right, that the mirror is correct, and that we are the one who's broken. And for most kids, again, for most kids, like there's not even a question of what to believe. There's not a, should I believe this or should I not believe this? The mirror just reflects a truth. And and that's what we know, right? It's a, it's as knowing as opposed to a belief, right? So parents and therapists and, and caregiver and other adults, like we have the power to change how people see themselves. And, And when people change how they see themselves, they change, right? Because again, there's that internal coherence that we're all really longing for. We want some internal matching. We want to, we want to match the beliefs that we have. So this is actually why I am such a huge, huge stickler on the theory. So this may be one of your first introductions to me, or you and me may have known each other for years and years and years. But if you don't already know this about me, you're going to quickly learn about me that I am a huge believer in understanding the theory. I want to understand the neurobiology of being human. And then I want to understand what happens when humans have experiences that are less than ideal and, and how that translates. And so I've worked really hard. I mean, I've been curious about this since I was, you know, a child. And then I have worked to help translate theory for people who aren't super interested in learning about 
neuroscience, right? But this all comes back to understanding and, and learning about this field of the relational neurosciences. So there's a lot of lot of pieces here we could talk about and go into. I'm going to talk about four kind of grounding pieces to to the theory specifically and how they really relate to this idea of changing how we see people changes people. So number one, a, a, a conclusion that we can come to through the theory of the relational neurosciences is that connection is a biological imperative. So when people are behaving in a way that's inviting connection, we can have our next thought be something like, huh, I wonder what's going on here. Or, huh, something's not quite right here. Right. So, and I'm not saying that in every moment of every day, like we're always wanting to be in like literal connection. You know, this is based on a whole lot of different things, including temperament, being introverted, being extroverted. Obviously, sometimes we just want to be alone. So I'm I'm in no way intending to imply that since connection is a biological imperative, we should all always be like wanting to be in, in connection with someone else. But what connection is a connection is a biological imperative means is one that we're um, open and available for connection with ourselves, and that our nervous systems are in a state in which connection is possible that it's safe to be in connection. It's also completely possible. You just don't want to, right? You want to be by yourself and, you know, in a corner of your room, reading a book all by yourself, but connection is possible because of the state of our nervous system. And what we know is that when, um, you know, the connection for, for, for humans is a biological imperative, what we know based on the theory of the relational neuroscience and to what has now just recently clicked into 2021. And of course, this theory is always evolving. The second thing that emerges from the relational neurosciences is that all behavior is an externalization of inner experience. That dysregulated behavior is about being dysregulated on the inside. So in my in my parent course, Parenting After Trauma, Minding the Heart and Brain, I talk with parents about putting on their x-ray vision goggles that what the like the goal of that course is to be able to use the behaviors as cues and clues but to not get stuck or hung up on the specifics of the behavior to just use them as cues and clues and to use them as cues and clues for what's happening internally for our kids. Dysregulated behavior comes from a dysregulated inner experience. And if we want the dysregulated behavior to change, it makes sense that we want it to change. What we want to do is see how we can help that person or offer up opportunities for regulation for that person. A third I wanted to pause the episode real quick and read you this testimonial from one club member. This person writes in, the club has been life-changing for me. For me, feeling alone in the stress and the overwhelm of parenting a child with complex trauma has been traumatic. 
Here in the club, we are finding healing for ourselves by feeling seen and heard and validated, even though we may have come here for our children's healing. Oh, y'all, that is exactly what I'm trying to do in the club, to create a space that's for you that also brings healing to your kids. So the club's open for new members until April 28th. We'd love to have you. RobinGobel.com slash the club. All right, let's get back to the episode. truth for me that emerges from the relational neurosciences is the idea that all true selves are lovable. I had a mentor say this to me once early, early, early on in my relationship with this mentor. And I remember it sort of like clobbered me over my head. I mean, it's one of those moments in my career where I'll never forget. I'll never forget where I was. I'll never forget the moment. I mean, the, 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 the charge in my own like neural synapses still feels really like palpable. Like I had a moment of just like, oh my gosh, yes. I mean, if all true selves are lovable and I'm with somebody who isn't evoking lots of like loving feelings from me, if I'm regulated enough myself, I can have a moment of saying, huh, something's not right here. And then I can get curious. You know, I can be curious about the part of themselves, a part of the other person that's leading in that moment, the part of that other person that is showing themselves to me. And I can, you know, be with that part and 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 deal with what it, what's ever happening. But I can also remind myself that this is a protective part of that person. This is not who they are. This is not their true self because all true selves are really easy to to love, right? All true selves are really easy to adore, and I have found this to be one hundred percent true in my, you know, in my grand life experience of me, I have found this to be completely true that it is easy to move towards somebody with love. And I'm not talking about like intimate love or romantic love, but like this, this sense of openness, a sense of connectedness when people are solidly in their own kind of true, true self. And then the fourth Thing that emerges for me from the relational neurosciences is something you may have heard me talk about before. I have a previous podcast episode on this. I have a blog article on this, but the idea that no behavior is maladaptive, which means all behavior makes sense based on how our brain is co-constructing our unfolding reality in every unfolding moment. So brains are anticipatory in meaning-making, relying on previous experiences to anticipate what's about to happen next and why. So our past experiences and our now experiences merges together, like these two streams that come together like a river. But sometimes the stream of the past floods the stream of the now, right? Or the way we're neuroceiving our now based on our past or based on our own unique like neuro differences contributes to our constructing a reality that might surprise someone else. Meaning, 
I may be taking in everything that's happening in the now, mixing it together in my brain with everything that's happened in the past, right? Which our brain is supposed to do. If our brain didn't do this, we would not be able to make it through the day, right? So our brain is anticipatory. It's taking everything that's happened in the past and helping us predict what's about to happen and then know how to respond to it, right? So, right? The idea that the way somebody's reality is being constructed could surprise someone else means that our brains are constructing a reality in the now that don't necessarily match each other, right? Like I may be taking in everything that's happening in the now, mixing it together with everything that's happened in my own past, and then creating an experience that shifts my nervous system into like an oppositional place or a defensive place or dysregulated place. And this is completely accurate as far as my own neuroception goes, as far as my own experience goes. We are always creating our own experience in reality, but it may surprise the other person I'm with, meaning that from their experience and how their brain is bringing together the streams of the now, the streams of the past, nothing seems unsafe, right? Everything seems okay to them. So those, those experiences and reality of two people may not match each other. And what we have to do is trust that all behaviors are a reflection of our inner experience and all of the, you know, other people's behavior is a reflection of their inner experience. And that based on how we are experiencing every unfolding moment, all of that behavior makes sense. So why, why is this helpful? Why do I really believe that understanding the theory is helpful and staying really anchored in the relational neurobiology of being human? Why do I think this is so helpful? Right. And in fact, so often a lot of folks are saying like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like your theory makes sense. That's great. But, but, but what do I do with that theory? Just tell me what to do. And without a doubt, there are some things that are helpful in that do category. But really, truly, like the most important thing is that understanding the theory changes how we see people. And now bad behavior from somebody else doesn't mean we see this person as rude or as a jerk or as manipulative or whatever like language we use that characterizes or describes their whole person right? We just see this person as a perfectly imperfect person who is struggling in this moment and whose behavior must be a reflection of their inner experience in this moment, but not necessarily like a, a characterization of who they are as people. Right? This literally changes the look in our eyes, believing in the relational neurobiology and seeing people through this lens, Right. Seeing people as having their own unique experience, creating their own unique experience in reality, and then having a behavior that's a reflection of their inner experience, as opposed to demonstrating a behavior that tells us like who they are in totality as people, right? Like a jerk or as rude or as manipulative or all these other words, like this literally changes the look in our eyes because believing in and understanding in the relational neurobiology of being human shifts us into a state in our own nervous system that literally changes our face, our eyes, the muscles around our eyes, the muscles around our mouth, even 
Okay. So now this person that I'm with who we can agree is not acting or behaving in a way that's kind of working for us or working for a relational connection, right? Now, when that person looks in our eyes, they see a new reflection of themselves, right? Because how we see them literally changes our eyes, right? Now they look into our eyes and see themselves as someone who's struggling, not pitied, just somebody who's struggling, somebody who's worthy of compassion, somebody who is good and just needs help, right? And then we are regulated enough to set compassionate boundaries, which I have another podcast episode about boundaries with connection. I have a blog article about boundaries with connection. So boundaries are experienced as I know your true self isn't a reflection of your behavior, but also this behavior isn't something I'm willing to tolerate in our relationship. So let's work together to figure this out. Depending on your relationship with that person, you know, working together to figure this out may mean working together to like redefine your relationship. It may mean more distance in the relationship. I mean, this can really vary based on your connection to this person, you know, whether they're your child versus an acquaintance, right? Are really gonna, those pieces certainly come into play, right? But compassionate boundaries are about communicating to somebody clearly, sometimes through the look in our eyes, somebody through literally what we say, I know that who you are and your true self isn't a reflection of this behavior, right? I know your behavior isn't reflecting that is maybe the better way to say that, but this behavior also isn't something I'm willing to tolerate in our relationship. So we've got to work together to figure this out, right? Changing how we see people changes people. And especially people who have a history of a lot of dysregulated behavior, people who have a history of trauma, right? They are used to people seeing them and reflecting back to them how bad they are, right? So people who experience trauma experienced being, you know, seeing themselves through the eyes of somebody who thought they were bad, who somebody who thought they weren't worthy of being cared for lovingly, right? So they experienced a reflection of their badness during their traumatic experiences. And then so often one of the, I mean, one of the greatest tragedies of trauma is how trauma impacts the nervous system and how trauma can contribute to dysregulation and how trauma contributes to how people see and, and receive and experience connection. And then ultimately this leads to behaviors that cause that person to continue to receive reflections from others that they're not good, right? So again, depending on your relationship with who this person is, how you set these boundaries, having boundaries with connection and compassion boundaries is, is going to be different, right? <clears throat> but think about just in this moment, bringing to mind how if you can stay really anchored in the this, this relational neurobiology of being human, how it might contribute to you responding differently to people, right? In your home, with your kids, with the other adults in your home, but but even just out in the world, right? The, the grocery store clerk who's curt 
with you or who never even looks at you, right? Maybe there's a moment where because you understand that this behavior isn't about this rude person or all these other ways that we could label that behavior, right? Um, maybe we are able to understand that their behavior, their curtness or their rudeness is, is simply a reflection of their inner experience. And, and, and maybe what that person needs most is just a little bit of extra gentleness from us, right? Uh, uh, maybe a clear, like, thank you for, for working. Thank you for continuing to be on the front line, right? Cause, cause I'm recording this, this episode in January of 2021 and we're, you know, the height of the pandemic and, and it's gotta be hard to be a grocery store worker right now. Or, or maybe it's, it's just a clear hello, that you offer this person who's being maybe rude or curt or ignoring you. And instead of, you know, connecting with that behavior and maybe ignoring them themselves, ignoring them too, or being rude back, maybe we just shift our behavior a little bit and see that person's humanity and and know that they're struggling and that, and that struggling people, what they often need are warmth. So maybe we just offer a warm hello or, you know, warm, welcoming eyes, right? And you might not see the impact of that, right? You might not see anything change about this person in that moment, but you might. And ultimately what that person received back was just a reflection of their core humanity, right? And that's, you know, always good. That's always good. So there's there's one more important piece I want to mention, but I'm not, I'm not going to go into it a ton because it's a really big topic and it's, we'll have to do a whole other episode about this, this big topic, but dysregulated people, oppositional people, people who are behaving in a way that's not inviting a connection. Their brain has an expectation about what's going to happen next, right? Because our brains are anticipatory. Our brains are always creating expectations about what's about to happen next. And and when we're dysregulated, we're expecting people to respond to us with their own dysregulation, right? Dysregulated people aren't expecting compassion. They might be hoping for it or longing for it, but they're not expecting it. That's not what, and expecting in the literal way of, of the brain's job being anticipatory, the brain's job being able to anticipate what's about to happen next. And dysregulated people are anticipating more dysregulation, right? So when the brain receives what it wasn't expecting, it has this fantastic, amazing opportunity to rewire. And we are seeing this through the theory of memory reconsolidation, that when the brain receives what it wasn't expecting, it has this opportunity to rewire, to make new and different neural connections. And those new and different neural connections can make long-term changes in the brain, which could ultimately lead to increased regulation. Changing how we see people literally changes people. It changes their brain. It allows them to see themselves through an accurate mirror, right? As someone who's struggling, but as someone who is good. Let me say that again. It allows them to see themselves through an accurate mirror. And that accurate mirror is as someone who is struggling, but as someone who is good as someone whose behaviors do not define who they are, as someone who overflows with infinite worth, because we all do, 
yet as someone whose behavior will result in a boundary being set and that both are true. We can stay connected to our true core of infinite worth and stay connected to the truth that certain behaviors are not acceptable in certain relationships and that a boundary is going to be set. They are both true. Alrighty, there you have it. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Parenting After Trauma podcast. If you're parenting a kid impacted by trauma or you support families who are caring for kids impacted by trauma, you can find a ton more free resources over on my website, including blog articles, more podcast episodes, and several free video series. My video series on trauma, memory, and behavior also comes with a free ebook. Head over to robingobel.com and poke around. You'll be able to find all sorts of different free resources. You could also add yourself to the waiting lists for both the Parenting After Trauma, Minding the Heart and Brain course, which is scheduled to open up for registration again sometime in the late winter or early spring, as well as check out the club and add yourself to the waiting list for the club. The club is a community of parents of kids who've experienced trauma, who have come together to offer connection, co-regulation to one another, while also continuing to learn and support one another in parenting kids who have experienced trauma. I'd love for you to add this Parenting After Trauma podcast to your favorite podcast player, and you'll always have the most recent episode at your fingertips. And of course, share it with your friends, colleagues, and everyone you know who helps care for kids impacted by trauma, teachers, coaches, even lawyers, CASA workers, and caseworkers. See you next time. Are you ending this episode with maybe a big sigh of relief? Like, yes, finally, someone gets me and my kids. But also maybe a sense of like, okay, but now what? All right, y'all, I've got lots of possible now what's. If you want to connect with me directly, like pick my brain, have access to me almost every day, not to mention hundreds of other parents from around the world who totally get what it's like to be you, then you're going to want to join us in the club. We have monthly live events, including groups for siblings of dysregulated kids, a huge video library with something like 80 or 90 videos, plus transcripts and certificates of completion. Plus, of course, a very active forum that I'm participating in every single day. We open for new members periodically. So go check robingobel.com slash the club. If we aren't open now, you can put yourself on the waiting list and I'll let you know the moment we open for new members. That's robingobel.com slash the club. Now, if you're a professional and you want to strengthen your capacity to work with the families of kids with big baffling behaviors and vulnerable nervous systems, plus use all of my materials, including a 12-module course that follows raising kids with big baffling behaviors, plus be included in an online searchable directory 
so families all over the world could find you, then you're looking for Being With, which is my year-long immersive training program that runs January through December. So you'll want to go to robingobel.com slash with, read all about it. And if you're interested, put yourself on that waiting list too. Now, if you just maybe need a little extra connection and co-regulation, but don't feel like you need to join the club, then you can just keep listening to my podcast. Or you could go subscribe to my Start Here podcast, and that'll give you 10 episodes in order that will take you through cultivating a great foundation of parenting with regulation, connection, and felt safety. That's at robingobel.com slash start here. You have to go there. You can't just find it in your podcast app. Or you could get yourself a copy of Raising Kids with Big Baffling Behaviors, paper book, audio book, ebook. You can get that anywhere books are sold. Or you could just head to my website download one of my very many free resources. I keep them all really easy to access at robingobel.com slash free resources. Webinars, masterclasses, ebooks, infographics, all sorts of stuff. Go check it out. See what of those things could be supportive of you or maybe to the other adults in your life who are helping support you and your child. There are just so many ways that you and I could be more connected and you can get the amount of co-regulation and support that you need. If it feels like a lot to remember, all you have to do is go to robingobel.com and take your time clicking around, seeing what I got there. I am so, so glad you and I are connected now and I can't wait to be with you again soon in our next episode of The Baffling Behavior Show. Bye-bye, y'all.